Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This concert turned out to be one of the most exciting adventures that the Albany's taken in recent history. It was to be a mainly Baroque concert, three masterpieces from the Baroque, and I have always had this idea of wanting to ask living composers to create what I call pocket concertos, sort of miniature concerti, uh, works in three movements, but only lasting about nine or ten minutes, sort of in the vein of Vivaldi's Four Seasons and of of the other great Baroque concertos, because back in the Baroque period, composers tended to write concerti that were much more modest in scope, lasting only about nine or ten minutes, and always in three movements. It was only in the classical, and particularly then in the Romantic period, that composers began to write ever bigger and longer concerti till they lasted a good solid half hour plus by the middle and late Romantic period. So my idea was to ask a group of young composers to write mini concerti, pocket concertos, inspired by the Baroque models, but in their own contemporary idiom and in their own contemporary voices, and to put these uh, pocket concerti, these mini concerti, on a program with some Baroque masterpieces. So you get this kind of wonderful frisson, this back and forth of the the great monumental works of the Baroque, but also uh, some works that are greatly inspired by the Baroque, and hopefully in the way they've been constructed, shed an interesting light on the way these young composers Uh, view the models on which they've been working. So I had this idea to call the Juilliard School, where I know a number of people on the composition faculty, among them John Corleano, the Academy Award-winning composer, and Christopher Rouse, and Sam Adler, and Robert Beezer, all good friends of mine, and ask whether it might be possible that three of their best students be asked to write concerti for their favorite instruments, and then also invite three young brilliant Juilliard virtuoso students on the instruments to each be the soloist in these three mini concerti. And that's exactly how this project worked out. So what we have are three Baroque masterpieces interspersed with three brand new, quite dazzling, I must say, concerti by three Juilliard composing students performed by three remarkable young Juilliard virtuoso performers. We began our program with uh, the original rebel child. I I was thinking that maybe I should call this program Children of the Baroque. Well, this is the the consummate child of the Baroque. This is Johann Sebastian Bach's second son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. You probably remember that Bach uh, was very prodigious not only in his musical output but also in creating babies along with his two wives. I think he had a total of 20 children. And uh, CPE was the second of the the Bach children and a remarkable composer in in his own right, uh, really one of the fathers of the classical period. He lived and wrote well into the uh, what we call the classical period and was well known and loved by his younger contemporaries, uh, Mozart and Haydn, and uh, really was kind of a father figure for their evolution as well as for the evolution of music after Papa Bach. And his music has remarkably little to do with the high Baroque style of, of his father, and yet uh, he, he felt that his father had taught him everything. His father had, in fact, been his sole teacher. But in the uh, 
1730s and 40s and 50s, there was a, a very uh, significant shift going on from this very contrapuntal style of the high baroque of Bach, of different melodies running against each other in fugues and canons and such, to a much simpler, uh, what we call the rococo style, uh, of melody with just chordal accompaniment. And uh, C.P.E. Bach was kind of at the cusp of this. At the same time, he was a brilliant harpsichord and, and early pianoforte improviser. He would sit at the keyboard and do these fanciful, very dramatic improvisations. And so his instrumental music has that element very much in it. So this is a, a, one of his string symphonias, an early sort of precursor of the modern-day symphony. It's in three movements, but they're interconnected. An allegretto followed immediately by a larghetto, a slow movement, and then a very fast and kind of electrifying presto. It's in B minor, kind of a dark, brooding key. And what I find uh, particularly exciting about it is that it, it, it's quite mad. It's a little bit uh, wild and weird. C.P.E. Bach loved very dramatic uh, juxtapositions of, of dynamics. Uh, he also liked to really suddenly change mood and mode. He really had a strong belief that music should be very emotional. It's almost, uh, it's very cinematic, dare I say, in that he does close cuts from one type of music or one affect to another. So here now is a, a Sinfonia for Strings, the Sinfonia Number no. 5 in B minor by C.P.E. Bach. This is a work from the early 1770s. Again, Bach's second son, C.P.E. Bach. The orchestra is the members of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach's Symphonia No. 5 in B minor for strings, played by members of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next up was a very exciting new cello concerto by a Juilliard composition student. Michael Ippolito is a, a native of Tampa, Florida, and is pursuing a master's degree at the Juilliard School, where he's studying with John Corleano. And uh, Michael wanted to write, in fact, I would say that of the three Juilliard student compositions we had on the program, his was the one that paid most direct reference to the Baroque models. Uh, when I had talked to each of the composers, I'd, I'd given them rather broad directive. I said, you know, go back and look at the models of Vivaldi's concerti, but don't just ape Vivaldi, really write something that's of your own time and place. And Michael, while certainly writing a, a compelling contemporary concerto, seems to have stayed the closest to the Baroque models. And the piece is called Vivaldi's Bicycle, Concerto for Cello and Baroque Orchestra. I think he got the title from uh, an interview that a French cyclist gave. A reporter asked him what kind of music he liked. Oh, he said, I like Vivaldi the best. And the reporter said, why? He said, because he has formidable sprints from time to time. So Michael's piece is predicated on this idea of the cello and the orchestra are having sprints. And I think you'll hear very clearly in the three movements of this piece the model, the, the Vivaldi gestures, even though uh, at various points it sort of wanders into the world of pretty extreme modernism, particularly in the middle of the second movement. Uh, it also pays great homage in a very elegant way to uh, Vivaldi and to Baroque music in general. The first movement is a sort of dazzling, almost minimalist kind of um, fast movement. And the second movement is a, a very touchingly beautiful, brief but extremely emotional and evocative movement that begins with a, a, a very beautiful oboe solo that's then taken up by the orchestra and, and at the end returns played a pizzicato actually by the cello, plucked by the cello. Uh, but as the middle section of the slow movement un unfolds, it does become stormier and actually more modern until you find yourself in quite a different world from the beginning and then it finds its way back. Uh, the third movement is a, a fast movement, an allegro molto, and just brings the work to a rousing conclusion. 
The soloist is a rather dazzling cellist named Dane Johansson, a very handsome and brilliant cellist, a young man from Fairbanks, Alaska originally, who's studied in France extensively and all over the United States, particularly in Cleveland before coming to the Juilliard School. Uh, he's a, a remarkable young artist, and it's very exciting to present him in the world premiere of Michael Ippolito's Vivaldi's Bicycle, Concerto for Cello and Baroque Orchestra. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast. Only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the world premiere of Michael Ippolito's Vivaldi's Bicycle, Concerto for Cello and Baroque Orchestra. The soloist was Dane Johansson, cellist, and the orchestra was the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on the program was one of the most glorious of all Baroque masterpieces. This is by the very important and uh, evocative composer Arcangelo Corelli. Corelli really was uh, active kind of one generation before Johann Sebastian Bach and George Frederick Handel. Uh, They're considered kind of the high Baroque, the the first part of the 1700s. You know, they both lived to the middle of the century, and that first half of the 1700s is really considered the high period of the the high Baroque, as it's called, the end, the final flowering of the Baroque period. Corelli was most active just before that, at the end of the 1600s, and he was a brilliant violinist, by all reports, and wrote all of his music, I believe, for string ensembles, for string orchestra. He wrote a, a number of sets of concerti and other works, and among them, perhaps the most famous single work is a work called the Christmas Concerto. It's a concerto grosso, which I'll explain in a minute, and uh, he appended un- underneath the title to be played on the evening of Christmas. And this being a December concert, we thought it would be an, a fitting piece to play. But Corelli factors very large in this a concert that has so much to do with the concerto because Corelli was really one of the creators of the modern-day concerto. Prior to his time, there had been these overtures, as they were called, which were tended to be three-part pieces, sometimes three movements, but often one piece with just a fast, slow, fast section. And it was really Corelli and a few other composers of his day who decided to expand that into three sort of separable movements or multiple movements. And also, far more, the most important innovation that Corelli brought about was this idea of the concerto grosso. Since in every orchestra of the time, there were principal players or, or the main players who were by far the greatest virtuosi, and then there were the rest of the players, you know, many of whom were fine and very good. But this idea idea of bringing forward this small group from within the larger body and making them a, a special group, uh, a solo group in essence. So the grosso section is the, the, the large, grosso meaning large, is the full string orchestra. And then there was this beautiful concertante section of these this small group of soloists. In the case of the Christmas concerto, it's two violins and then a cello and a harpsichord as continuo, as the bass line. This concerto grosso is, is one of the greatest examples of this beautiful form, which brings out a small body of soloists and pits them against or juxtaposes them against the larger body of, of orchestra players. And it was only a short step from these concerti to the solo concerto, which kind of evolved at about the same time, where one great player stood out in front, and that's how we get our, our modern concerto. So uh, the Corelli Christmas Concerto is from the Opus 6, number 8. Uh, it actually has, depending how you count it, uh, five or six movements. Uh, the first section, a very dramatic opening within a very beautiful slow, what's called a grave, uh, a slow, expansive section, and that's followed by a, a brief allegro. Uh, the second 
part of the piece, the second movement, I guess you can call it, is an adagio, allegro adagio, a beautiful, slow, almost Paco Belcanon-like section that then proceeds into a very fast section and then the slow, beautiful section comes back. Then there's a vivace, an allegro, and finally a beautiful pastoral, uh, which is a a shepherd dance. In essence, uh, very often these pieces were were played with dancers or with processions in church on Christmas Eve, and uh, there would be a sort of shepherd's dance or people dressed as shepherds to close the piece. Our soloists are our concertmaster, Jill Levy, our principal second violinist, Funda Chismikolyu, uh, as well as our continuo players, principal cellist, Susan Libby, and harpsichordist, Greg Hayes. Again, Corelli's Christmas Concerto. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Archangelo Corelli's Concerto Grosso Opus 6, Number 8, the so-called Christmas Concerto, played by members of the Albany Symphony with uh, Jill Levy, concertmaster, and Funda Chismikoyu, principal second violin, as soloists, Susan Libby and Greg Hayes as continuo players. And that leads us to the work that closes the first half of the program, a very exciting work by a 23-year-old young lady who was born and raised in Tehran, Iran, uh, where she had piano lessons from the age of seven. Her name is Giti Razes, and uh, she immigrated with her mother and her sister to the United States, first to Houston, and then I must say to Albany, New York, where her mother was a resident uh, at Albany Medical Center for a few years. Uh, and so she spent summers uh, while she was in her first years of college uh, here in the Capital Region. We're very proud to have been host to her and to her wonderful family. She then went off, Giddy went off to the University of Houston, where she studied pre-med and uh, composition for a couple of years, then decided she really wanted to devote herself to composition, and so went directly to the Juilliard School, uh, where she is now in her fourth year as an undergraduate. So she's still technically an undergraduate and just finishing up this year. And she studied with John Corleano, the great film and uh, concert music composer, and Sam Adler, a grand man of composition. Gitti uh, had, had been in touch with me early on when I had explained the, the premise of this concert and said that she'd like to write a clarinet concerto, which I thought was a grand idea since clarinet wasn't really a Baroque instrument. I thought that would be a, an interesting new take on the Baroque-style concerto. Then she called me back a few weeks later and said, you know, maybe it should be a flute concerto. And I said, oh, that's too bad. I was hoping for a clarinet concerto. She said, oh, well, I thought you wanted a more Baroque concerto, so I thought I'd change over to flute. And I said, no, I think you should write for the instrument you want. And so she, in fact, did that. And she's written a very jazzy exciting, colorful piece that really only owes a certain amount to Baroque style in structure, dare I say, in that uh, it was very interesting to have her with us uh, describing it. She said in her her examination of Baroque concerti, she noticed that the way the orchestration is set up is that they're the high instruments, the violins and the oboes, um, which tend to handle all the melodic material. Then there's this, what we call the continuo or the bass line of the cello, the bass, and the harpsichord, and often the bassoon that sort of occupy the bass, the bottom. And there's usually some uh, filled in, almost improvised, what we call the figured bass that the harpsichord usually realizes of kind of putting in the harmonies, but in a way that he or she wishes, a sort of semi-improvisational idea. And so that's really the way she organized this concerto. And instead, she said, instead of giving the harpsichord the improvisational parts, she gives that to the solo clarinet. So the clarinet part is quite fascinating and quite uh, dramatic and dazzling and daring and, and extremely difficult, all the big D words. And the soloist, Moran Katz, is a young Israeli-born uh, clarinetist, and she's just a dazzling artist who recently won the Munich Clarinet Competition, which is the reigning clarinet competition in the world today. Uh, so we're really honored and delighted to have her. She's a doctoral student at the Juilliard School. And uh, this is Gitti Razes's concertino for clarinet and orchestra, a 
little concerto. Uh, it's in three movements. The first is titled Swift and Exuberant. It's built on just a couple of little motives and has this wonderful sort of mechanistic sense about it. It's quite uh, electrifying. The second movement, I think, owes a great deal to Gitti's studies with John Corleano. It's in that beautiful sort of American neo-romantic style that Corleano does so well. And the third movement is a, a dance. It's a tarantella, kind of lively, dashing dance. Again, very virtuosic and dazzling. So this now, the world premiere of Gitti Razes's uh, Concertino for Clarinet and Orchestra. Soloist is Moran Katz, the clarinetist with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. After that very involved first half, our second half was occupied by only two works, one of them a monumental masterwork of the Baroque period, Johann Sebastian Bach's Orchestral Suite Number no. 1 in C. But before that, we had the third and final of our three commissioned concerti from Juilliard students. This one is by Evan Fine, a young man who grew up in the Cleveland area and has already had great number of performances and, and great successes. Evan's music tends to be very programmatic. He loves to have a narrative idea. He's a student of Bob Beezer at the Juilliard School. And for this project, uh, Evan decided for his scenario that he would focus on a good friend of Johann Sebastian Bach's. His name is Gottfried Reiche, and he was Bach's favorite trumpeter. He was the major trumpet virtuoso in Leipzig when Bach lived there. And uh, according to Evan, uh, Reiche and Bach were great friends and performed together and drank together and hung out a lot together. And in Evan's imagined scenario for the piece, Gottfried Reiche is putting on a performance without his illustrious friend Bach in town. So he gets together a group of of his fellow musicians as his backup band and um, begins a very important sounding and and very uh, strong, maestoso, majestic kind of uh, first movement, which actually, if you Keep it in mind when we get to the Bach suite, sounds uncannily like the first movement of the Bach suite that, that follows the, the Evan Fine piece. So the first movement begins with a, a grave, again, a very grave and, and strong, slow introduction that leads into an allegro and kind of goes back and forth. And the way Evan describes it is as uh, Reiche is playing his trumpet and leading his musicians, uh, they begin to get a little bit distracted, particularly the violas and the cellos and the second oboe and gradually the harpsichord. And they begin to, their minds begin to wander to the, the uh, beer hall down the street. And so in the middle of this very portentous and somewhat pompous Baroque-style music, you hear this little bit of um, chup, chup, um, chup, chup, um, kind of a, a three-against-two sort of thing going on where you begin to hear a drinking song that as they sort of, their minds wander to the beer they'd like to be consuming instead of working. And so that almost hijacks the movement, but doesn't quite. And uh, Mr. Reiche manages to reestablish discipline so that the piece can end together. Uh, second movement, he decides to do away with all these these sort of lazy musicians and focus just on the continual group, those instruments who traditionally uh, are the bass lines. So he's got the harpsichord and the cello and the bassoon, uh, and various instruments begin to join in. The double bass has a very prominent role, actually, long before the cello enters. Uh, so it's really, at the beginning, it's it's the trumpet with the bassoon, the harpsichord, and the double bass. And they play this beautiful kind of counter melody, this bass line against which the trumpet is able to play his beautiful melody. The bassoon is given particular prominence, and Stephen Walt, our principal bassoonist, does a beautiful job of playing this. The movement is based on, it's what's called a chacon, which is essentially a 
a small phrase that then gets repeated and embellished and varied as it keeps repeating. It happens to be a five-bar phrase in this piece. And you'll hear the melody kind of repeat and repeat and repeat with different elements changing. But uh, this group of musicians is easily bored. And as the repetitions begin to happen, you'll begin to notice that various instruments begin to kind of embellish and change and improvise and kind of do their own thing to the point where the harpsichordist is off kind of doing something of his own and the bassoon is doing something else. And the bass is sort of inventing the four-bar blues on his own. Uh, And the piece kind of comes to a cacophonous ending, at which point the uh, trumpet soloist sort of lays down the law and plays a a, a not too extensive but rather dramatic cadenza, a solo passage, about 30 seconds. And that leads everybody into a final movement, a sort of dancey, lively, beer-drinking, beer-swigging kind of movement, which happens to be the the beer hall music from the first movement now turned into a a lovely jig, and everybody goes off happy to the beer hall after the performance, I suppose. So once again, this is Evan Fine's brand-new trumpet concerto, The Frustration of Gottfried Reiche, a concerto for trumpet and baroque orchestra. It's the world premiere featuring trumpeter Colin Zieg, and uh, it's played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Evan Fine's brand new trumpet concerto, The Frustration of Gottfried Reiche, featuring Colin Zieg trumpet with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller which leads us to the final work on our program. I wanted to end with some big Baroque masterpiece. So while this is not a concerto, it is a a glorious uh, work for Baroque orchestra. It's Johann Sebastian Bach's first orchestral suite in C major. There's some mystery as to what exactly Bach wrote the four orchestral suites as well as the six Brandenburg Concerti for, what event or events. It's thought that during his time in Cothen at the beginning of the 1700s, he was doing more secular music, not quite as much sacred music. And that it was probably at this time that Bach wrote these 10 incredibly seminal, important works of the high Baroque, of the final Baroque period in Baroque history. And these suites are are essentially dance suites. If you've ever encountered the English suites or the French suites for, for harpsichord, those are kind of keyboard versions of these orchestral suites. So this was a kind of loose amalgam, a kind of a book of a group of different suites uh, that were to be played all together, slow, fast, different uh, specific kinds of dances that would have had great resonance with the Baroque audience. So the movements of the Bach First Orchestral Suite are first the overture in this very dramatic style, not a dance movement, a sort of grave, a a slow, dramatic introduction with a wonderful, lively fugue, a, a very fast repeating section. The second movement is a courant. The third movement is a pair of gavats. Uh, The fourth movement is a forlan. This is a very fast, lively music with very difficult uh, accompaniment in the violas and second violins. Then a pair of minuets, followed by a pair of bourrées, and finally a passepied, a pair of passepieds, I should say. Passepieds, just uh, like it sounds, a French word meaning the feet pass next to each other. What's always fascinating in working on these Baroque suites, these dance suites, is to to begin to understand or learn about the different forms of dance of the period, courtly dance as well as some folk dance, and to begin to understand uh, Bach's take on these. It helps a great deal in, in the way we decide, we interpreters today, decide our tempos, our speeds for these pieces. You know, were they danceable? Were they meant to be danced? Were they meant to be danced by the French or by the Italians? Because the styles, for example, of the corrente in Italian is rather different from the courant in France. And so I hope 
you'll like our version of it. Uh, it's in certainly glorious music by that greatest of all Baroque composers, Johann Sebastian Bach. So once again, to close uh, this program, Johann Sebastian Bach's Orchestral Suite Number no. 1 in C Major, featuring members of the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes Podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music.